Welcome back to the Heights of Humanity podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Shabam Pandey, a data scientist who specializes in building machine learning algorithms in both the advertising and finance industries. Shabam presented some truly amazing insights into the impact and future of artificial intelligence that I have not heard anywhere else. As always, I hope you learned something from this episode, and I wish you all the best. Now, without further ado. Okay, Shabam, thanks so much for coming out. How are you doing? How's your day going? I mean, I just woke up, and I think uh, it's a great start to my day, mm -hmm. you know, being here, like starting my weekend. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What do you think of the weather lately? It's been frigid. Uh, yeah, it's just been swinging like a pendulum, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, going uh, below freezing and then just warm. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. And how's your work going? Everything? Yeah, everything is going good. Mm -hmm. Getting a lot of challenging problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that's something that I'm excited about working on. Yeah. Very cool. It's good. Very cool. Yeah. Can you summarize your work in your field for us, for those not super familiar with yeah. data analytics and things? Yeah, uh, definitely. So, um, I mean, my background has mainly been in various aspects of optimization. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dealing with lots of data. And in the recent past, you have seen that you know the amount of data that every business has to deal with has grown by a huge amount. And when I say huge amount of data, it's just not about storage. Mm -hmm. You are not only concerned about storing the data and just retrieving it in plain form, but you do want to study it and you want to get useful insights out of it. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what data science is. Because science is studying something and so data science is studying data, right? Mm -hmm. And if you talk about software development, that's also like you know building something out of uh, building something on top of that so that users able to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean software development has faced many challenges because of the growing data. Yeah, and my experience has mainly been in building those applications that are powered by you know huge amounts of data. Yeah, yeah. So what has that change been like? Um, is every year is there more and more data that's kind of available to your industry? Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you look at, if you go two decades back, right, uh, organizations, they used to store data on-premise. And when I say on-premise, it's like a term that we use to say that they are storing data on their on the physical machines that they have, that they own, right? So on the computers that they own, like yeah, at their facility? Yeah, exactly, okay. the storage systems. And then they would have, and this is two decades back, um, and they would have people like some database experts managing it. Mm -hmm. But a few years later, it's just like people started to have a lot of online presence. And it although it became easier for the consumers to find products, it became a big challenge for the business to gotcha. digitize themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the five Vs of big data, right? So one of them is um, volume, okay. right? So it has started to grow a lot and also with a great velocity. Mm -hmm. So it's a big challenge for sure. What are the other Vs that you talk about, the five Vs? Yeah, let me try to recall. Yeah, so no problem. Yeah, it's um, volume, velocity, variety. Mm -hmm. Variety is important because you see data in a lot of different forms. And then they have veracity, which is to make sure that data is legit. Like you need to go through all of those processes where you say, okay, this data is legit and this data is not. Mm -hmm. And then there's value. Value, okay. 
so how much how much is this piece of data going to bring value to business gotcha so yeah and how do you look at those five v's or is that something that you so say there's like a data product and um you're looking at you know how can we use this are you looking at are you checking off like okay it's got a lot of volume but it doesn't have a lot of velocity but it has a lot of variety are you kind of looking at it like that so I think these, all of these V's, they manifest themselves naturally. Okay. So it's just that, how is business looking at it? So some of the V's in, in here are going to pose a big challenge to the business, for example, velocity and volume and variety, right? Because if you have lots of different types of data, then you have to think about how you, what kind of underlying databases do you want to use to store them? and. Velocity is, of course, a problem because your systems have to be capable enough to kind of uh, ingest all of that data with that speed, right? And then volume, of course. This, if there's lots of data that you have to deal with, then, of course, you cannot have on-premise machines. Uh, you know, it's just a huge headache for all the businesses to have those machines and have the database experts managing it, which is the reason why you'd see, uh, you know, the advent of the cloud technologies because there's just a only a few businesses who are going to provide that service mm -hmm. to you to store that huge amount of data and just manage it. Yeah. And how, how recent is um, a, that big switch from storing data physically to storing things on the cloud? It is, so like I said, right, two decades back, people did not usually think about it. Actually, more than two decades back now. But as soon as people started to have their online presence, the amount of data grew started to grow drastically. Mm. So that is when businesses had to uh, move into transition into using those cloud technologies because it was just not um, it was just not feasible for them to have those database experts to hire those people and do it themselves. Mm. Yeah, you can only build a computer so big that can store so many things. Yeah. Right? So there's there's one thing called vertical scaling and there's one thing called horizontal scaling. Mm. And vertical scaling is when you keep upgrading a machine. Let's just say that you have a machine that has, I don't know, 16 gigs of RAM or 32 gigs of RAM like you have in the in your personal computers, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, if you think of, if you want to upgrade that machine in terms of storage or memory, there's a limit that you would reach beyond which it's just, it's, you have just reached state of the art. Mm -hmm. You cannot scale it beyond that. That's called vertical scaling. And what we usually do when we want to deal with huge amounts of data is we horizontally scale. Instead of keep, instead of uh, you know upgrading a single machine, what we do is we introduce a lot of machines and we just distribute the loads. Gotcha. So yeah, that's that's how you deal with huge amounts of data. It's just not a single machine doing everything, of course. So if I'm getting this right, vertical scaling is upgrading the individual machine, yeah. and horizontal scaling is okay. Making I'm at the same level yeah. of um, of efficiency, but I'm just having more and more machines at this level to exactly. make everything faster and more efficient. Yeah, and okay. in fact, you'd be surprised that the horizontal scaling option is actually very uh, cost-effective mm -hmm. because scaling a machine vertically is, you can imagine, right? If you are uh, buying a MacBook that has a higher RAM, it's gonna cost you significantly. But if you have like many machines that have just you know a small amount of RAM, you could, and if you are able to find a way to distribute the load, then you, you'd find that option much cheaper. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'd end up having a supercomputer and it's still not going to you know, do, the, do the job for you. Yeah. So. Does that, 
I mean, I'm pretty ignorant about the subject, mm -hmm. but I'm almost thinking that might get in the way of innovation in regards to making the individual product better if instead of making the machine itself incrementally better, you're scaling horizontally, like you said. Mm -hmm. So now you just have a lot of machines in, okay, we have this problem that requires this much computing power. Okay, we're gonna buy all these machines instead of improving our computer. Interesting point. So you'd be surprised to know how almost every business is fine with doing horizontal scaling and only a few, in fact, only a few research works would need, would really need a vertical scaling mm. because every problem can be solved. Most of the businesses' problems can be solved with distributing their load to multiple machines. You can imagine, like, for example, Amazon, right? There's lots of people purchasing things on Amazon. Now, why do you want all of the traffic from every user on in the world to go to a single machine? It can be distributed, right? So there's a machine that's going to distribute the load to every machine, and they would take care of it. Mm -hmm. So, so before you say, you know, it limits the capacity to innovate. Let's ask us. Let's ask ourselves a question: That do we really need a machine that is that powerful, and do we want that machine to be only responsible for computing everything, right? So unless you are computing, I don't know, billion digits of pi after the decimal places, you would probably not need a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's the reason why supercomputers are like you know s extremely vertically scaled, is because they are doing a very specific niche job. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just very specific to some research work. So I would say you know it's always good to vertically scale, but you'd be surprised to see that almost I don't know ninety nine point nine nine percent of the businesses, it's just horizontal scaling. Yeah, it's just more efficient and uh, probably more time and cost-effective yeah. yeah and you can just you can just bring a machine up or bring the machine down based on the traffic that you have throughout the day or in based on the season mm -hmm. so so talk to me a little bit about your journey up to this point how did you end up being a data scientist in Austin um, okay so yeah that's a that's an interesting journey I mean I, I, I can probably trace it back to my high school, so um, I, I took a, a C++ course and, um, you know, I was just interested with, I just got interested in, you know, writing programs. And so I think it, it was just really exciting to, you know, write code and just just write everything that you want and then make computer do it, right? It's just, a, it just feels good. Um, and also like the way, computer science is closely related to math because I was I was always interested in math so you know uh, I started to like computer science and also it's uh, uh, it's a field that's in demand today mm -hmm. so I it, it was a no-brainer for me to pursue this field and I think with my experiences back in India like I used I, I worked in India full-time for three years I just realized that data is something that I really like you know uh, getting useful insights out of it and also just optimizing things because it's a big challenge for all the businesses now. Mm -hmm. So that's how that 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 has been my journey, and um, yeah, that that's the reason why I just really like dealing with a lot of data. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, optimization is my thing. I just love that. Um, I I did my masters at Purdue, and then I I focused on all the 
topics related to you know dealing with data and yeah that brings me here mm -hmm. what was that journey like going from india to the us mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's many aspects to it honestly like uh, the, the feeling is like i don't know you maybe uninstall an app and then reinstall it and you have to start over again <laughs> i don't know uh, but yeah i mean change of environment was definitely um, I mean, I had to get accustomed to a lot of things like, um, of course, the weather, uh, especially in Indiana, especially, oh, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, and then also the, I guess the medical system here is like a bit, a lot different from how it is in India. So I had to understand, you know, what's copay, what's deductible and all of that. I was not aware of all of those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, so many different things. Like people here love to commute, uh, like drive a lot. In India, people would definitely prefer, you know, flying or taking a train. But um, yeah, people here drive long distances, so like a lot of lot of different things that I realized was very different from India. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think overall the transition was pretty good. Mm -hmm. I'm liking it here, so yeah. 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 Do you like the weather better here or, or oh, better there? Or do you not have an opinion? I definitely like colder weather, but not the kind of extremes that I. I saw in Indiana, okay, but I just don't like too much heat because I guess there I have been in parts of India where the heat would go to around forty-two degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. That's that's way above hundred, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's hundred Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah. All right. So what about so you're talking about differences between India and the U.S. As far as industry goes, mm -hmm. and working in India and working in the U.S. What are some of the different things that companies do in the U.S. that they don't do in India? Hmm. That's that's a hard question because um, hmm. the thing is, when I was working in India, I honestly it was like I was still working with a multinational corporation, right? I worked with Goldman Sachs and Visa. And I used to interact with people from across the globe. Gotcha. Okay. Like I worked with folks from yeah. Singapore, London, US. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I don't think there's a big difference. So it's always been very international. Yeah. Gotcha. It, it's, it's just, I mean, it just depends on the company culture as opposed to, you know, being in India or being in the US. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the small thing that I noticed was uh, people in the US, they don't mind waking up at 8 a.m. Most of them, I'm not generalizing either for the people in the U.S. or India, or in India, but yeah, it, it, I find it hard to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to make you wake up early for the, the podcast. Oh, no, no, then. no, that's fine. I mean, 9 a.m. is fine. Okay, okay, cool. So 8 a.m. is no good, but after 9 a.m., you're, yeah, you're all good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, switching to AI and machine learning, what makes AI and machine learning and deep learning and all those things so powerful? Okay, so I think I can speak about it um, in terms of the kind of work that we are doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, let's just, and I'll, I probably will touch some of the fundamentals here. Uh, so what we are trying to do is we are trying to reach the audience that might be, I'm just giving an example here, right? Our business uh, problem is we are trying to reach the audience um, that may be interested in a product or a service, right? So let's just think about all the products and services out there. 
like there are millions or perhaps billions of products right so the problem of identifying that this product might be useful to this audience let's just say that you're writing you you think of writing a piece of code and it's rule based right so when i say rule based what is it it's just you are tr- trying to identify some parameters and saying if this value is equal to this then product equal to this something like that right yeah. so you can imagine how how laborious that would be and you'd you'd end up uh, writing that piece of code for your lifetime and even then you'd not be able to cover all the products right so that's a hard problem to solve and that's where we resort to using those sophisticated machine learning algorithms that are informed by the historical data of success and also like many different parameters so they learn all of those parameters and then they are able to suggest that you know this is the great opportunity uh, this audience might be interested in this kind of product and it's still not a bin- binary decision it's not that okay you found an opportunity and you just want to place that product when we are doing that there has to be a dollar value associated with it okay so because you 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 kind of bet you are saying that okay i want to place my ad on this website and this is the dollar value that i'm willing to give right so and then there's an auction that's conducted and who whoever wins the bid is going to get the ad placed there so that's another caveat to it deciding which product and then deciding the dollar value and the story still doesn't end there because as a business if you want to uh, reach different audience you have a budget right so let's just say that um, you want to sell something during holidays right and you have a specific budget so there's an so you've written an algorithm that's really smart right it's able to each it's re- able to reach all the right audiences and it's able to predict the right dollar value to win the bid but it ends up consuming all your budget in 2 days and you, you you could not even get close to the uh, close to maybe christmas and you you ended up spending all your budget right so that's bad so there's another problem to solve which is to be very cognizant about the remaining budget and so all all of these three things if you want to keep all of these three things in mind then you can you can see how ai can be useful in you know not just predicting the opportunities and not just predicting the dollar value but also understanding this is how i want to span the usage of my budget mm-hmm. right so it's it, it is a complicated problem and that's the reason why we use all of those machine learning algorithms gotcha. to help us out when you say budget do you mean the company's budget or the budget of the person trying to get their advertisements out there the the person who's trying to get their advertisements gotcha. out there that's so if i'm running an ad campaign at the beginning of the month like you were saying and then um i want to maybe hype things up for christmas mm-hmm. um and normally before ai you would have people writing code saying if this person uh likes gym equipment or like if this person likes gym posts then show them gym equipment ads right but to find every parameter and every category and then to find every ad to show is a huge problem it's going to cost a lot of money for the person trying to advertise mm-hmm. right so then um you use ai to speed the whole process up and it's able to work really quickly with all this big data and then also take into account the amount of money that or the amount of capital you have going into that advertising campaign How, is that a good summary yeah uh, just just a quick clarification on the first part i think we touched upon the rule based code right so it was just an example to actually contrast uh 
the benefit that AI would give you, but people like in the history of the world, people would never write uh, rule-based code for this problem. They would not, what they would normally do before AI or before all of these machine learning uh, algorithms came into picture is they would do some market research, right? They would still study the data. So data science was naturally there forever, right? People are studying data, but they would not, they, they would just not have those machine learning algorithms to, uh, you know, do it for them and really fast. Because you can imagine when you're loading a web page, right? How fast is it, how fast is it able to load that page? So before it shows you all the data and maybe possibly some ads, everything everything has already happened, including the auction and you know deciding who won the bid, wow. and then show it show the ad to you, right? So you can imagine how fast we need to be, mm -hmm. especially in the inference times. Uh, so there's there's two aspects to machine learning algorithm, right? One is how fast are you able to train it, and then how fast is that machine learning algorithm going to do the predictions for you or do the inferences for you. Okay. So you have to op optimize both of these things, but especially the second part. Okay, back at it. Can you define inference time for me? Yeah, so uh, there are two aspects to machine learning algorithms, like I mentioned, right? Uh, is how much time does, uh, does an algorithm take to train? Uh, that's when it's going to optimize all of its uh, you know, parameters and it's just gonna learn everything. And then there's the whole point of making a machine learning algorithm learn is because it would be able to do something for you, right? So that do something part is actually inferences. So you're gonna, so once it is trained, now in the real world, it is going to see some parameters, some values come in and it's gonna do its job of giving some output, right? Let's just say uh, an image recognition algorithm machine learning algorithm, it was trained to identify animals, right? So you trained it, fine, maybe it took two or three days. Now, what's more important is, actually they are equally important, but what's really important is, when you give a new image to that machine learning algorithm, how long does it take to give you the answer, right? So that's inference times. Gotcha. Yeah. So how fast are inference times becoming nowadays? It honestly, it depends on domains. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I can say is many deep learning or neural network based architectures, they tend to have a higher um, inference times as opposed to some uh, simpler algorithms like, I don't know, decision tree, because it's just gonna make some decisions to a certain depth and then give you the answer. So if I had to, <laughs> I don't think I can pick a number and answer mm. that question. It's just it it just depends on time. You can you can ask that question to yourself and actually get the answer, right? So let's say you you want to search an image on Google, right? Google allows you to do that. So if you if you just input that image in the search box, how long does it take to give you all of those results, right? That's inference time. Gotcha. Okay. But it's 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 at a very large scale because it's gonna give you a lot of images, right? Mm -hmm. But and that's commendable, by the way. It's really fast. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, you can you can see all of those inference times in many it, in in many uh, applications. Mm. It it can just vary. It can be I don't know a minute. Some machine learning algorithm can be so sophisticated and for a very hard problem, they could take a minute, an hour. I don't know. Or it can be microseconds, nanoseconds. Mm -hmm. It just depends. Gotcha. Just depends on how much you're putting into it, 
and then like you said like the decision making process the decision making process is actually a very important factor because neural network architecture let's just say it's a deep uh, neural network right so naturally it's going to take time because the data has to be passed on to many different layers and then eventually it will predict the output and that's one of the reasons why you'd see that in many low latency domains uh, where you have to like make a decision really fast they would probably not use a neural network architecture even though they are like they they get trained in a very accurate way like i mean not in an accurate way but neural network architectures are really strong right this they are considered to be very strong but you can still not use it because it's going to take time to predict and yeah. that's just not a business use case for you yeah so you have to balance like um the actual structure of your decision making process because you want it to be sophisticated and give you the right answer but you also don't want it to take too long right so you have to balance those two yeah and that's i i guess that's the story of if i had to like if there was a civilization that came from some alien world and i had to describe them what computer science is right i would say it's the struggle between um i don't know the time that you take and the kind of output that you produce it's actually a struggle between the time that you take the memory that you consume and the kind of output that you produce gotcha. yeah I, it actually reminds me of ram conjecture mm-hmm. so um what ram conjecture says is th- this is very popular in databases what it says is so th- there are three letters in ram right so r u m r is read u is updates or the writes that you perform and m is memory right and when they talk about it they put it in a triangle so read would be in one of the vertex update and then memory mm-hmm. and the whole idea is that you cannot achieve all three of these if you are closer to at least two of them then you're going away from the other one and so it, it, it is always a struggle and people are trying to balance things if your reads are faster your updates would be slow if your updates are faster then your reads would be slow mm-hmm. it's funny how there's so many different industries that when you boil it down it really does become a tug of war between how much resources do i have how much time do i have yeah. how much how much energy can i put into this yeah and trying to balance those three things exactly and if you look at the essence of optimization what is it right optimize why is optimization called a problem because when you are looking at an optimization problem there has to be at least two variables that are op- that are opposing each other that's when it is an optimization problem otherwise i could have given you a very simple problem and said you know given a variable x maximize it mm. it doesn't make sense it is still an optimization problem but a very uh, uninteresting one because you could just say x is equal to you know x tends to infinity and there you go i have solved the problem yeah. but if you add more constraints to the equation that is when there is an optimal solution or a close to optimal solution we call it quasi optimal solutions mm-hmm. and you just want to achieve those solutions because yeah exactly it's yeah. like uh, you have a business and you're making money and it's like okay just make more money exactly like, there's no other constraints so i'll just make more and more money. more money but now you add resources and time and logistics and employees and holidays and now you have all these little things to optimize. Yeah. It's a very hard optimization problem uh, for all the businesses. So, so is so AI is really good at that optimization and finding the sweet spot. 
it depends on what it was trained to do but in general yes uh, they are going to give you some uh, whatever it was trained for right so like i was t- telling you about you know we want to predict that dollar value uh, that's going to be that's going to likely win the bid if we are really confident that that user would be interested in that particular ad so yeah i mean it's going to find that optimal optimization can have like many different meanings but yes uh, machine learning al- algorithms are in fact the training process is optimization in in the sense right what are you optimizing when you are training a machine learning algorithm can you think of uh, what is it that we are optimizing we are optimizing so there's always a cost function associated with the machine learning algorithm right so what are you optimizing you're optimizing the cost you're bringing that cost down mm. that's when and once you see that the cost is really low or that that value has achieved us is has gone below a certain threshold that's when you say it's it's performing very well so it it is an op- the training of the machine learning itself is an optimization problem mm-hmm. so for for the audience um i i want to ask with all these advancements in advertising and showing you the optimal ad is does that mean when you're scrolling on your phone or when you're doing something or when you're at an auction the ads that you receive are going to get better and better and better at predicting what you want i mean the whole objective is to create a relevant experience for the users right and so i think you would have also noticed this right uh, let's just go maybe 10 years back i don't know um and now you would actually see that there's lots of relevant ads or something that would relate to your interests that you would see in your feed as opposed to 10 years back so definitely there's lots of uh, lots of things have changed since then you know the way people uh, understand data study it and then just use it to reach the audience now some people would have some many people would have some i don't know privacy concerns related to that but the thing is everything that happens is you know it is uh, it does follow all the data governance rules and the privacy rules mm-hmm. and so yeah i mean they have to respect that and even so they are able to give users a relevant experience so i would say yeah i mean uh i guess in near future you would probably see you know more relevant ads and not not the not the kind of ads that's going to creep you out and say you know how does it know i was at starbucks you know at this location or stuff like that but that's going to that's that's the experience that you'd probably going to enjoy and say hey you know this was the product i was looking for and you just go ahead and purchase it things like that. I do notice sometimes that I'll be having a conversation with a friend about I don't know like uh I'm telling him I need better sleep and then all of a sudden all my ads are about sleep. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I haven't even told anyone but I'm kind of like thinking about doing this thing I'm, I, or I'm like I need to walk my dog more and then I get a dog leash ad. Mm-hmm. And it's so crazy that sometimes it can like predict things that I've never told anybody or maybe searched one time what kind of data um are you guys taking into account when you produce advertisements like that okay so at let's let's uh, talk about the first part of the things that you were talking about right um which was you'd not even explicitly maybe do a google search on something and you would start to see uh things about you know maybe sleep or something so um i actually i'm happy that you mentioned that because um i have a small story to tell you about that uh 
there's there's this thing called serendipitousness right and machine learning algorithms are really good at that now what does it mean what it means is that a machine learning al algorithm is going to produce an output that you did not expect but it's it makes sense based on the data for example i think there was a study uh, that said um, so they did some associative analysis I'm, i might be messing up the word here but they they found out that uh, people who purchased beer also purchased diapers there was a correlation between these like they would usually in their car these two parts would be together now it not to uh, exactly right so uh, now to a normal human it just seems ridiculous they don't have any correlation as such but it just made sense based on the data they had mm -hmm. um and i was also surprised to uh look at some of the other datas here which is again on the line of serendipitousness right so it's not really about you know we are breaching your privacy or stuff like that but you you just have to accept that machine learning algorithms are so so smart and uh that they are able to predict those kind of outputs yeah. um i was so when i was in my senior year back in college i was actually so we used to uh, have those tech fests in college where like all the other years would participate in it and we would be responsible for setting up questions i can tell you that i i had set up one machine learning algorithm question okay and they the students were able to just they had to find out some correlations and do some predictions and whoever did it the best would win that team would win i was i wrote that code okay i knew what the correlations between the variables were right they were between certain random constraints in python but the kind of correlations that the students came up with were not the ones that i had set in the code but they were real correlations but they were co real correlations wow so it's it's not magic but mm -hmm. it's it's the part of uh, that i was talking about which is serendipitousness right you would not expect that to be true but the data is just not going to lie the data is suggesting that that's going to happen so, so 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 when you get uh, an ad that makes you feel pretty creeped out it's more so a function of you being somewhat predictable as a human being and ai being really really smart and not so much a function of you know your mic is being tapped into and people are looking through your cameras and seeing what you're doing yeah of course i mean that's i mean that's there's many conspiracy theories i don't believe in all of that um you know you yourself would not know that you uh you would be interested in a product just because your subconscious mind maybe you were you were driving you know driving through a highway and there was an ad you did not pay attention to it really but your subconscious mind kind of read it and then you just want to buy that product right so you would not know why you got interested in that product but you are so yeah i mean there was again there was the study uh I think some psychological study or something that was conducted where you know uh, people were shown some things initially they were not aware of it but those those objects were there in their surroundings and then they had a bias towards those objects even though even though nobody asked them to explicitly look at those objects so it's it's just you know you, you don't know what you are what your mind is registering and the kind of things that you would get interested into yeah yeah uh, being aware of bias in my experience in in um geology a whole separate field mm -hmm. um is also very very important yeah. um i would imagine there's bias in also kind of the misconception of feeling creeped out from an ad because you might have an ad that doesn't stick 
okay, this, you know, I, I scroll past that really quickly because mm-hmm. it's not relevant to me. But then as soon as there's an ad that's like relevant to you, now you feel all creeped out. <laughs> and now you're thinking they're watching me, they're doing all this. Yeah. But maybe that was one ad in 10 that that was relevant. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So where do you think the technology of AI goes from here? What are some of the improvements that you can see being made? Right. I think, um, so let's, let's look at some of the interesting problems that AI is facing, uh, facing right now, right? Uh, so I was having a discussion with uh, one of my friends. He's, in, he's working for a pharmaceutical company and they're developing some uh, solutions to medicine. And the problem, the problems that AI is facing right now, is it's not just a pro- it's not really a problem. But what happens is if someone comes up with a nice neural network architecture, or if they are able to suggest a way to consume data in a specific way and you know pass it on to uh, some sort of machine learning architecture, and it is able to predict values accurately. That's a work that's publish that's publishable. So what I mean to say is that even in the current state of the U, uh, of the AI, people have to, in a way, spoon feed the uh, the algorithms because they have to say, you know what, you process this data in this specific way, perform some matrix transformation stuff like that, and then maybe reduce the dimension of the vector to this size, and then feed it to the neural network architecture, right? All of those things, like, it's just, you have to be very specific. You have to specify, okay, this is how the machine learning algorithm learning should work. And that's when you're able to get the best out of it. Even if you change the small parameters like learning rate or something, or I don't know, regularization, it's just gonna perform ridiculously bad. Mm-hmm. So. So the takeaway from this is uh, people are still trying to kind of spoon feed. So it's still in, in its infancy, right? AI is still in, in, in its infancy and there's a long way to go for AI because uh, you just have to specify architecture so many times. This is, there's a popular CNN architecture that's able to you know, process images really, uh, really well. There's popular neural network architecture that are, going, that are able to generate images really well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, um, I think there would be many advancements on this side in order to maybe have a lesser effort on this side in, uh, in order to decide architectures. Maybe hopefully we would have something in future that's gonna say, you know, hey, I found this architecture that's gonna work really well rather than humans kind of uh, implementing those architectures and saying, this is the best working architecture. Yeah. The other problem with AI is, uh, honestly, I don't think that this is a problem, but definitely as a scope of improvement, the other problem with AI is, I don't know if you heard about this story, but uh, there's this self-driving car business in San Francisco. And there was there was one incident where um, that self-driving car was, it hit the pe- pedestrian, one of the pedestrians. Um, I don't know if the pedestrian was on the road or whose fault it was, but the, but the crazy thing that happened after that was that th- that self-driving car, it just detected a collision Okay, it did not acknowledge that it was actually a pedestrian that it collided with. And so the only thing that it detected was a collision. So now what it was programmed to do for that was to park the car, okay, after after that. 
makes sense. I mean, if if there's a collision, maybe find a find a safe way to park the car and you know get out of harm's way. For example, what it ended up doing was there was a pedestrian involved in the incident, and it kind of dragged that pedestrian with it when it's when it was parking mm-hmm. because it was just programmed to do that. Yeah. So maybe the way it sensed the environment was something that it did not see in the training process, right? And it's it's a problem that would exist forever because you cannot possibly create all of those situations that the machine learning algorithm should be prepared for, right? So that's another problem with AI is it would it there would always be one test case or the situation that it has not seen and at that time it would have to make a best guess as to what it has to do right so that's another problem with ai um there's just one more and i'll just um briefly describe it is we talked about image recognition right so you would be surprised to know that uh, let's just say that there's a self, again a self driving car it it encounters a stop signal right so the way it understands it is is it has that processing logic it sees stop signal and it would stop or maybe always stop or whatever it would take an action according to what it saw the signal right but then there are adversarial approaches you would you would literally just change i don't know four or five pixels to the image of stop a human cannot see that those changes right and the machine learning algorithm would predict completely different so instead of seeing it as a stop sign maybe it would see as i don't know 70 miles per hour right so there are many adversarial attacks that people can conduct on a machine learning algorithms just because of the fact that it it was not trained in a way that you know just the changes of four or five pixels you could not even imagine or maybe someone could just go to that stop sign and just do that and all the self driving cars would go out of business right so this 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 adversarial thing is also very important yeah and it has to be addressed so i think in near future this is some these are some of the important things that you know ai has to address and i definitely see ai getting used a lot in healthcare you know at the moment still people are using generalized medicines but maybe people would in future with the help of ai and with the help of uh, you know all the uh, technologies we would be able to understand every person in the individual sense and then they would be able to come up with the medicine specifically for them if you want to get creeped out with that for sure but it's just going to help you uh, much better than you know a generic medicine mm-hmm. so yeah i mean definitely excited and looking forward to how that changes and then data privacy is something also that's very important data governance there's so much that we can talk about in ai honestly this this is a question that you know we can keep talking about forever but yeah for sure we can keep going um let me give you an analogy just to make sure that i'm understanding this correctly mm-hmm. and that the audience understands mm-hmm. so ai as it is right now is kind of like like uh it's like building a house or something like that and but we have to tell it the blueprint in which like okay you need to have a room here you need to have a pillar here um and it can't really come up with that itself right mm-hmm. so we have to very much it's very much on the training wheels and we have to tell it which direction to go yeah and then also 
it's almost a double-edged sword be because or because it is so sensitive to small changes in data when there's a small change in a very complex environment like um, the the streets of Austin, Texas, um, it might predict something completely different. Yeah. So if there was a crazy dude that wanted to spray paint the stop sign, yeah. then it would just go right through the stop sign. Yeah, I mean, not even spray paint. It's about, so spray paint is obvious, right? So if, if a law enforcement officer comes, acro- comes across a spray painted stop sign, they would take measures to uh, correct it, right? But the worst thing is, the, the bigger problem is, nobody's actually able to find the root cause of the problem because you literally made five pixels change for a stop sign. And when I say pixels, it may be, you know, just small uh, small marks in the stop sign, right? Mm-hmm. And you just know exactly why this is going to work because you can op- you can actually define a machine learning problem and it's going to give you a stop sign that for a user, for, for a normal human, it looks like a stop sign. But um, the machine learning, a state-of-the-art machine learning is going to predict that to be, I don't know, sem- uh, 70 miles per hour uh, speed limit uh, sign. So that's a bigger problem. It's not about, you know, you spray painting. That's very obvious. Someone would just correct it the next day. So even if it's like, um, I don't know, someone drives by and they hit a puddle, so there's like a, some specks of mud that fall on the stop sign. Yeah. Even though the sign's completely red and it says stop, even though, the, even though like it's so obvious that it's a stop sign to any person looking at it, yeah. AI would treat it as something completely different because of those little specs? Be, exactly, because of those little specs and the fact that it did not come across that kind of data set in its training. So it had to make a best guess. And the best guess was something completely different, right? So that's a, that's a big problem. So how are, how are those cars even able... Because I see them around the university. I mean, they'll drive around the apartment buildings and things like that. How are they even able to drive around? I would imagine there's a lot of pixel changes when they're exactly. So here's the thing. All the all the all the uh, uh, smart folks who are building those algorithms, they are aware of those adversarial approaches, right? So what they do is when they are training their machine learning, uh, all of those algorithms like image recognition algorithms, they are keeping that in mind. And so it's it's like a constant battle, right? So let's say uh, you found out that, okay, this, these are the things that these people are doing. Let me uh, add a patch to the machine learning algorithm so that it's gonna, it's still gonna predict it to be a stop sign. So now the adversarial uh, people who are on the adversarial side, they would know that, okay, they have added this patch. Now they would do something else. And this, this cycle keeps going on, on, right? So it's like, now we have reached to and almost equilibrium, right? And the way you push the equilibrium is uh, to on on either side is you come up with a smarter way to outsmart the other person. It's it's the same with the cryptography, right? The way you, you break the passwords, there would still be people who would uh, in this world who would be able to uh, I don't know bypass uh, your very secure accounts, but they would just not do it because. Uh, uh, they just don't want it. They would do it to a person or a larger organization where they would have a larger benefit, right? You would have heard about a lot of people, you know, breaking into someone's system and the data breach and all of those. You still you still keep hearing those news, right? So it's all about, so they are also adversaries. So the similar thing uh, applies to machine learning um, and AI is, of course, they are aware of those adversa- adversaries. And so they have patched their machine learning algorithms 
with the capability to not be affected by that. Mm-hmm. But if there's a smarter adversary, you know, you need to keep upgrading. So it almost sounds like you're talking about like hackers and people that want um, want self-driving cars to barrel through stop signs. Um, but what about just like accidental, like I was saying earlier, like some flex flicks of mud get on the stop sign or maybe someone, I, there's a lot of people that like to put stickers up on things, mm-hmm. things like that. That's definitely going to, I mean, there's no way, if, if there's a sticker on stop sign and it almost covers it, then of course there's no way uh, for it to predict it's a stop sign, yeah. right? That's that's an obvious thing. Um, and there's no solution to it other than just removing this, removing those stickers from the stop sign. But the harder problem is definitely when it is very stealthy, right? It's mm-hmm. just, you, it's not very obvious to human eyes, but mm-hmm. it's still there. And the specks of mud, I, I believe they would have uh, trained their algorithms to not be bothered by that because specks of mud is much different from a careful orchestration of five or six pixels. Yeah. Specks of mud is like very obvious to machine because we are definitely that advanced that you know specks of mud are not going to change the decision. It's still a stop sign. So it seems like the more we implement AI into things, the more vulnerable we can be because you could have someone come along that's like, um, say say they're all cars are self-driving. You could have someone that goes along and just like, I want everyone to just constantly have a green light, always. Yeah. Like uh, there's a scene of that in like The Simpsons or something. But, yeah. um, and so you could essentially, if you wanted to commit like an act of terrorism, um, change a couple pixels in the widespread system and now everyone's cars are going crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you can think of it this way, right? What would be the motive? Like, what exactly would be the motivation of a person to do that? I mean, th- there would be like some sadists who would just want uh, accidents on the street. Yeah. But then there, there's a, there's another thing is maybe there's a competitor for that self-driving business that's just booming, and they would want to introduce those kind of issues yeah. on the street, right? So that's the reason why businesses are not just facing challenges with the growing amount of data mm-hmm. and the way they have to be so accurate and fast, but there's these adversaries that they have to be, especially with very sensitive things like self-driving cars, yeah. right? They have to be very sensitive about those things. So there's a big cybersecurity problem when it comes to designing the systems. So cybersecurity is something when someone, that's, all, that's of course, that's one of the obvious problems. Every every organization would have, you know, cybersecurity folks just making sure that nobody gets into their systems. But this is not about getting into their systems, right? And that's th- that's the, for the lack of word, beauty of it, is, you did not have to change their machine learning algorithm, right? The self-driving car, you did not do anything to it, mm-hmm. but you were still able to make changes to the environment that it's perceiving and making decisions based on that. That's much easier. You don't have to break into the organization's code and modify it. You just modify the surroundings. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yep. (laughs) So do you have any ideas of what that could mean for things other than self-driving cars? Like maybe for, for what you guys do? I interesting 
yeah i mean we do have like many uh, fraud detection uh, processes and we want to identify some of the like so this is just an example for something that's specific to us is we want to identify that the the ads that we are placing for the businesses who are our clients we are placing those ads on some legit websites and not those websites where you know there's no traffic at all because that's not going to be useful to the business even though they would be successful in placing their ads on a website it's actually a site generated by a bot because let's just say you want to earn a lot of money right you would you would create a random website and there would be a bot who would just participate in those auctions right they would say okay we have these many places to place ads in our website and everyone would start bidding and you would get a lot of money for you know them being able to place ads on your website so we are we are taking measures in order to identify that you know the places where we are placing ads it's just not uh it's just not a bot or something or just not it's it's just legit so mm-hmm. we have to identify that it's very important yep so what's some advice that you would give to someone looking to get involved with ai maybe there's a student at ut who's uh, in the computer science school who's very passionate about AI and wants to wants to get in the field or something like that. Yeah. So I think um, it, this is my personal opinion, but um, I think it's very important to be, uh, you know, be to not just learn about the libraries. Like a lot of people, when they start out with machine learning and AI, they are swayed by you know, very simple libraries that you have in Python, right? Or other other programming languages where you would just use those libraries and they are able to predict uh, things. Those are some pre-trained models and you just have to tweak some parameters and it's just like, you know, toys. Um, you're playing around with it. But I guess if you really want to get involved in AI and really advance, it's so important to get the fundamentals right. Uh, so what is the maybe what is the mathematics behind it what is the intuition behind uh neural networks for example or what is the intuition behind this decision tree when would you want to use a decision tree and not a neural network like ask yourself all of those complicated questions right uh, and try to get the answers to those questions so definitely understanding the fundament start with understanding the fundamentals and then move on to the applications so that's definitely one of the important things. Uh, you would still be able to you would still be able to find a job where you just have to do that, but um, there would not be a, a huge progress unless you understand the fundamentals. So instead of going onto the internet and finding already made machine learning uh, libraries or things like that, mm-hmm. and just playing around with things that are might be a little too advanced for you at the moment. Just go back to the fundamentals, put your nose in the dirt, and try to understand those big questions and very fundamental concepts, and then kind of work your way up. Yeah, I think that's uh, what I call um, is understanding what's happening under the hood, right? You are able to drive a car, but if you're not aware of what's happening under the hood and you just, you know, you're stuck somewhere, then you'd be like, you know, I just, I just know how to turn the steering wheel and hit the brakes and stuff. But I don't know what exactly is happening under the hood. That's where you, and th- that's that's where your career would stop. You'd just be able to write those algorithms, but not really improve them or come up with something very interesting. 
I love that saying. Yeah. Understand what's under the hood. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. Is that okay? Of course. I mean, I'm stealing it from one of my professors at Purdue, so feel free to. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, for Purdue professor. That was a wonderful <laughs> saying. I'm sure he stole it from somebody else. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I actually I actually mentioned uh, his name when I was writing my uh, statement of purpose. And he's mm -hmm. a great professor in database, and, you know, I, I'd always look up to him. He's just a very smart guy, of yeah. course. <laughs> but, yeah. Are you familiar with the phrase... Um, learn to code just like if someone's on the internet and I don't know, they're complaining about their their job at starbucks or something someone mm -hmm. will go just learn to code yeah i have heard about it is that actually legit like can someone who is working like maybe a blue collar job and wants to get a better paying job or they want to work from home or something like that is it legitimately possible to go on the internet and take free or cheap courses and then work your skills up to being a programmer? I think this question can be very, uh, so it depends on how you interpret learn to code, okay? Um, because if you learn to code, it's, it, it's just not enough. Let's say uh, you learn to code and you just wanna know how to write code in um, C++, for example, right? I feel like that's not going to be enough. And just being able to write code is definitely not sufficient. You have to understand what exactly is happening. Um, many people, they tend to, uh, they, like I think the AI example, right? You can apply it here as well, is they are able to write the piece of code, but they don't really understand what's happening uh, when, you, when you maybe execute a statement, for example, a very simple example, right? So people can relate is you, there's a statement called sort, right? And you're sorting an array. Now, if you, you if you were to work, if you learned to code, right? And you were working for an industry and they are now they, you have written this piece of code and now they ask you to say, you know, hey, we are facing some problems with the latencies, for example. It's just a bit slow. Can you see what's happening with that code? Now, sorting algorithm is not a very simple algorithm. It's I mean, it's it's a very fundamental and simple algorithm, but there's there's lots of lots of things happening behind it. It's it's a it's an algorithm that has an n log n complexity, which means if you have maybe one million elements to sort, it's gonna take um, the order of n log n time to sort those elements. Mm, okay. But if you just learn to code and you did not understand all of those things, all of those algorithms, all of those data structures, right? That's really important then you would you would really not be able to take the feedback and modify that code so it's it's really important definitely they would be able to uh, you know learn all of those things from i think to answer your question yes they would be able to learn a lot of things but it's just really important that they understand what writing code is gotcha. because on the face of it it may just seem that you know learn to write code okay so i'll just learn to write code but it's just much more than that. It's about you understanding what's happening under the hood. <laughs> exactly. It's it, it does sound a lot like your advice for learning about AI and machine learning. Just understand the fundamentals, understand the systems that are going on, yeah. understand what's under the hood, yeah. and then um, you know, actually writing the code. I, I mean, I feel like it doesn't... Cor correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like... 
learning how to write the code itself and learning the syntax is less important, especially now with things like ChatGPT, where you can kind of just tell it, hey, I want code that does this, this, and this, and then it'll just write it for you. Yes. Or like, what's the syntax behind this? It'll tell you. Yeah, exactly. And I was actually about to mention that is the things are kind of reversed now is it doesn't matter what, what kind of language you are really proficient in, in most of the cases. And that's why you would see a lot of interviews that you know these uh, large corporations conduct. Uh, they give you the option to choose the language because that's hardly what they would care for. They don't care what language you can write. What they want to understand is, you know, are they able to solve problems? Are they able to break down a business problem into an engineering problem yeah. or a or computer science problem, a programming problem, and then just solve it? So That seems to be a reoccurring theme. On the first episode, I talked to, um, do you know Dr. Michael Perch? He's also a data scientist. I I have not heard of him. So he's yeah. a he's a data scientist at UT, and okay. he does uh, geostatistics. I see. Um, pretty similar stuff to what you do, just in geology and for oil companies and things like that. And his big advice with AI was like, it's going to give you competency, but it doesn't have a lot of comprehension. So the comprehensive aspect, right, like the creatively solving problems, needs to come from you, yeah. which seems like exactly what you're saying where you need to understand the fundamentals and um, what's happening behind the curtains so that you can creatively solve the problem and use your own brain instead of just relying on things that that AI can probably do for you yeah and if you look at the differentiating factor among organizations or within an organizations based on who is earning more and who is earning less right it's, so do you think that um, a tech team manager is writing a lot of code? In most of the cases, they are. Maybe somewhat they're writing a code. But most of the times, they are making decisions and saying, hey, you know what, let's do this and write code this way so that we are able to solve a problem. So you can see how learn to write code is still going to land you to that position. But in order to be a manager or someone like an architect or a principal engineer, you just have to know the fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah, you have to know how to conceptually, like, I, I'd imagine that they're coming up to you with, um, or like if you have a customer that you're writing code for, they're coming up to you with a pretty complex problem. And so if you want to be, you know, a, a, a kind of a big shot in what you're doing, or you want to be more than just a, a low-level programmer, you're right, you have to understand like fundamentally, how can I take what I know about computer science yeah. and then um, make the problem that you're having or solve the problem that you know my customer is, is yeah. facing? Yeah, and you'd be surprised. Actually, this is not surprising at all. Um, people just come up with, so as an engineer, you cannot really predict what kind of requirements you'd be getting from a client because you have this engineering mind and you just want to, solve you know engineering problem okay i'm so interested in it and you get so involved in it but then you realize that you missed something very simple uh i i'll give you one instance of this uh we were developing this analytics product for merchants uh, and there was this metric um, so what we used was to print anything on the ui we would use floating point numbers so it would have you know maybe 12 point 
12.0 or 12.54 or something like that that was the format and there was this metric that was that was indicating count and it, it was showing count as 10.00 or 5.00 so for us i mean we did a lot of testing okay on that product before we showed it to the product team and then the first thing that they noticed we, we it, it took us like i don't know two weeks to come up with that and just do a lot of stuff it was well tested it did not break the first thing that they noticed was and this was just i don't know i think 30 seconds into the call they said why is the count uh, why are we seeing count as 12.00 should it not be 12 so the thing is there can be so many different requirements that you would see coming from the clients that you cannot as a as an engineer predict there can be some very complicated requirements too like for example in our domain right uh, i was talking about the way you want to spend the budget let's just say that the way you have written your software it it spends the budget uniformly right now if there's a client that comes up to you and says you know what i i want to spend 10 10% of my budget today 20% tomorrow 30% and then so on right 50% the next day then you have to think about okay this is this is this is something different how do i do that you know this there's an easier solution to this problem but just clients are just going to keep coming up with something that you could not have predicted and you have to adapt to it yeah. so the only way you would be able to is when you have you know better understanding of it and not just the elementary way of the things that work gotcha i want to ask you a similar question to what we've been talking about and kind of the advice that you give to someone looking to get an ai but now just advice to someone who's just entering that computer science field maybe a someone who's doing their undergrad or yeah someone who's doing their undergrad what would you give to them what advice would you give to them mm-hmm. i think um my advice would be and this is from my learnings is you know i did not start participating in a lot of tech competitions or hackathons early on because like i i used to get worried about how how people would judge me i don't know but i would definitely say that um they should start participating and start getting practical experience early on um i think this is i'm i'm talking about the tech field in general like if someone is doing computer science major or computer engineering is they should start getting practical experience early on that's very important so you are prepared for the inter- industry if you want to get into industry and if you are if you do if you do want to get into academics um uh, then i guess i i don't know if i have a great advice for those but definitely if you want to get into tech industry start getting practical experience mm-hmm. start by participating in those tech competitions because um i had this incident so i when when i finally started to participate in those tech competitions so my college used to have those and the uh, the students from the senior year would actually conduct it like i mentioned right so i was giving an inter- interview and one of my seniors so uh she was asking me questions about pointers in c++ and uh, after i was done with my interview she said you know your knowledge is and i was uh, in sophomore year that, at that time and she said my knowledge about c++ pointers was at par with the students in the junior year So I just realized that a lot of people have this feeling that you know they are not good enough and so they they want to 
they want some time to prepare themselves and then uh, get out get out and you know do all of those things but there's no good time for it it's just just get started as soon as you get an opportunity you know don't worry about someone looking at you like oh you know he did not make it in the competition just do all of those things uh, early on you'll learn through the experience itself yeah you know what i'm saying so hackathons tech competitions what about internships and things like that oh yeah um so i actually did my internship only in my junior year but i also saw like a lot of students going for some research and internships in their sophomore year but yeah definitely internship is going to give you a great experience especially with some colleges they have this uh semester they do this semester long internship uh, as opposed to just doing internships during summer that's definitely going to give you a great experience in in the industry if you if you eventually want to transition to that so yeah and what's your experience with uh grad school and getting into a masters program what advice would you give to someone you know later in their undergrad who's looking to do a masters yeah i think that's my story so i'll give you uh my thought process here is before doing my masters i had 3 uh, years of full time experience and whenever i was working on a problem i always wanted to understand like what exactly is happening here you know am i just i'm just writing this piece of code and i want to understand why people are using these kind of uh, methods right for example and i had this uh, so one of my teammates uh, when i was working with visa he uh, he he did his masters and there was something unique that i noticed about him okay um whenever we would solve a problem in the team like something related to the project uh, i would just take his advice and he would share some papers with me like the published papers and so and those papers were very relevant and i was just very um i look up to him n- even now is because he had this no- he had this kind of knowledge that even the people who were senior to him in the industry but they did not do graduate studies did not have it's it's a different path for every person based on preference but i really loved reading those papers and understanding things in depth right and so that is that is when i i think i decided that i should be i should be in an environment where i could do more of that is to study papers get in depth of things because that's something that i really like um in fact there's an itch i always have this itch when i'm writing something and i don't understand it completely even when some task is given to me i just have to understand like what is the origin of this task why do we really want to do it you know asking that very simple question of why so that's the reason why i started i just wanted to pursue a masters and it definitely met my expectations so you the the original question was what was the experience like right so uh, what what was any advice that you would give to um someone trying to go into masters but what the experience was like is also okay go ahead yeah yeah so uh, i think the advice would be you should pursue uh graduate studies or higher studies after finishing your batch bachelors if you have those kind of feelings that i had kind right? of like why are, why are we doing the things that yeah. we're doing you know really get deep Yeah un- under the hood. Yeah under the hood. Yeah. Uh because otherwise you would just find yourself in a very um, in a position where you're just not enjoying it and you're just doing for the sake of it. I would definitely not suggest doing that especially if you think of doing PhD and thinking you know uh, I would have this PhD uh, degree and it would just look good on my resume. That's definitely not the right motivation to be 
in graduate studies and so you have you have to so the advice would be you have to have this mindset of getting into the depth of things and you have to ha- you have to prepare yourself uh, to what graduate school is going to you know make you go through because uh, Purdue has a very rigorous academic curriculum and many graduate schools do it's because it, that is the reason why it's called graduate studies is uh, you know you you're done with the basics but now you have to do something specific so if you're not really interested in that there's no point in pursuing it mm-hmm. yeah you need to have the right motivation so you can get through the academic challenges that yeah that you're going to face in grad school yeah so would you say grad school is more difficult than undergrad as far as coursework and things like that hmm. i mean it definitely gave me it was it was more specific for me than how the how it went for me f- during undergrad and for obvious reasons like you have some very specific topics that you indulge in rather than you know talking about things on a high level uh so i would not say it was hard but it was definitely uh very involving and it kept me busy all the times throughout the semester especially because uh, i I did my bachelor's back in India and in India uh, usually the pattern is that a lot of focus is on the uh, f- exams but um you know when I was here and I was studying they just pay attention to everything like the assignments or the projects that you are doing and they just keep you busy throughout the semester and specific especially because it was the graduate studies you know you were getting into depth about everything and uh, I found myself thinking about different topics not just when i was in front of computer but when i was walking and just you know thinking about those things so that's really good if you're really involved in a topic you would you would enjoy it yeah so in your opinion what would be the most useful skills for someone who is going into a computer science job going into grad school just going into the industry in general it seems like from what you said practical experience and then you know just asking why like why are we doing this thing um we're doing it because of this okay why are we doing that okay we're doing this because of that okay why are we doing that yeah yeah i mean um i think so the question is uh what is going to make you successful in tech industry what right? are, what are just skills that are good to have good, good to, to develop have. especially good to when you're kind of making your way up into tech hmm or what skills have been very useful for you yeah i think uh, there's so many things that are desirable like so first of all you know you should not just be able to solve the problem because i guess i feel i feel like four out of five people would be able to solve this problem a, a particular problem that's given to you but what's more important is you are able to express it like you are able to say okay you know what this was my approach and you you are able to successfully reason about it and then write that code because especially when you are in an industry you're not going to work in silos it's not like you developed a product and nobody asked you about it right you have to communicate and so those interpersonal skills are really important um when you're working together which is which is always you would be working with someone right and i think when you're looking at a problem you have to be careful about um uh, all the 
all these special cases like i think we touched upon it a bit uh, when we were talking about ai and how you know you can break a machine learning algorithm right just by doing some manipulations in pixels so you have to have this uh, ability to find out those corner we call it corner cases right uh, popular term if you are able to write a code then also figure out those corner cases let's just take a very simple example right you want to divide two numbers right so basically write a function to divide two numbers a and b so a divided by b and just you just return that value but what did you miss when you were writing that you just assumed that the denominator would never be zero right so if if you just did not add a check there then if b equal to equal to zero say something you know through an exception or whatever you would end up breaking a production code <laughs> right that's bad so so this 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 is the characteristic that's value that's valued a lot in industry is you being able to identify all of those corner cases this was a very simple example but let me tell you corner cases manifest themselves in such a complicated way that sometimes they are really hard to identify so you have to have that knack for you know looking at all of those specific situations and just write a robust code maybe um good intuition yeah intuition plus a good study of the problem um intuition would give you the high level idea about this is how i should approach but then if you go into the depth and really understand the problem and say you know okay what if the input is this would my code break so you know those are the things that are really valued in industry so understanding what exactly your customer is asking from you and then um what could go wrong what could go wrong yeah. yeah what could go wrong is really important because uh let's just say there's a single machine we were we were talking about horizontal scaling right so uh let's just say there's a single machine that's handling requests from 10 clients right now if there is one request that comes from one of the clients that you did not prepare your code for then that machine goes down and all the other nine clients are also not going to get their request served i mean this is a very rudimentary example of course there's intelligence on top of it that's going to route it to some other servers but i'm just saying that it's going to have more it's going to have a larger impact than you can imagine when a code breaks mm -hmm. so it's important to look at that yeah is that one of the downsides of horizontal scaling is it when something goes wrong it goes wrong for the entire no, system or that's that's actually the upside of uh, horizontal scaling oh really because uh, let's just say that there was uh, there's 10 machines uh, that you have right and if one stops functioning then why would the other nine machines uh stop functioning they they there's nothing that went wrong with them on the other hand if you had just a single machine a vertically scaled machine that was taking care of all the requests and something bad happened to it then you're gone right you're done right mm -hmm. that's a single so it's it's we call it single point of failure gotcha. so you just don't want to have that problem with you when you when you're in business and is it easy to find the exact machine that failed yeah i mean there are many tools that are going to help you uh, figure that out so i mean we are in a position where it's like really fast in fact there's so many mechanisms to there's so many backup mechanisms that you have um set up that's that's we call it infrastructure right the way you have set it up is as soon as you see something going wrong with a machine the backup immediately comes up and it takes it assumes the position or responsibilities of the other machine 
so yeah, I mean, we call it replication in databases, but like a similar kind of concept is adopted um, in all of the systems. It's, you just replicate the data or have a have a have a backup server that's gonna take up the responsibilities. Gotcha. So when you horizontally scale, you have a nice support network of okay, if this fails, then you know this machine's gonna take its place and yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm curious, what programming languages do you use most in your day to day career? I mean, statistically, there has to be one, right? And I'd say it would be Python because it's just a very, it's very easy to prototype in that language. Uh, you know, you, if you're prototyping, I would definitely not suggest uh, using C++ or Java for that. Prototyping meaning? Uh, prototyping meaning uh, coming, so you come up with an idea and you just want to test it. Mm -hmm. So you write a quick piece of code gotcha. um, and just test it out. So that's really easy in Python. I've done that a lot. Um, and of course, all the machine learning projects that I've worked on were in Python because of the great library support that it has with the ML community. Uh, so I would say Python is that language, but that doesn't mean I have inclination to that language. It just depends on the context. It just, depend on, it just depends on the context. Uh, if I want to write an application, you know, I have a good, inf like I have a good framework support, I would use Java. And it just depends. It just depends on the situation. Gotcha. So, so it's Java, C plus plus, Python, just the normal, like big coding languages. Oh, so if you if you're asking like what kind of uh, coding languages I've used, I have also written code in GoLang, mm -hmm. um, Scala. Yeah, I mean these are the popular languages I can think of. I mean a little bit of. Uh, some of the querying languages, like Q is one of the querying languages, SQL is one of the mm. querying languages, Hive is querying language for uh, big data. Yeah, I guess I wanted to frame the question, I, I should have asked it a little better, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to frame it in a, such a way that, you know, someone who's um, going to go into the tech industry as a programmer, developer, um, knows kind of, okay, what am I getting into? What languages are they using? Mm -hmm. Are the languages that I'm learning in school right now going to actually be applicable when I get a job? And it seems like oh, the answer is yes. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. And sometimes it's also because of the legacy code. Like if you join an organization and they, the all the legacy code is written in, for example, Java, then of course you'll have to work with that. But the good thing about languages is that you you would get used to writing code in that language even if you don't have exp any experience with it. Like I mentioned, right? All the organizations, when they are taking interviews, they don't really worry about, especially at the uh, at the lower levels when, when you're just starting out, right? Um, they don't care what kind of languages you are aware of. So you should also not be specifically worried about what language is in demand. Of course, you could look it up and I guess you'd get, I don't know, Python, Java, all of these languages at the top, maybe Golang, right? But I think that's not something that any, anyone should be worrying about is, you know, what's the syntax of the language and what kind of language would I be getting into? Mm -hmm. That's not one of the important concerns. So back to what we talked about, you should be more worried about understanding the fundamentals. Yeah. And, um, solving practical problems. Yeah. And not so much how, mu how many languages do I know? Yeah, that's, I mean... If I were to look at a resume, I would definitely skip the section where they mention 
you know the languages that they know especially when uh, i am looking at a candidate who is just starting out yeah and um i, I want to circle back to uh our discussion about your kind of initial motivations for going into data science mm-hmm. and um why you chose it as a career um you already outlined that for me but i am curious has that changed with time you know has your motivations as you've gone through school and now are in the industry are they different than when you first started i yeah i mean th- this would be a this would be a process for every uh, everyone who is in computer science or data science is they would start out with something and then they would maybe change some that that change the direction career direction a bit so it has happened to me as well and it would keep happening in future it just depends on the trend right um you you cannot just you cannot help it because everything is changing so dynamically and you have to kind of adapt to it but in terms of interest i would say my motivation has changed but the better way to put put it would be uh they have become more and more specific uh, i started out with uh as being a software engineer um you know just writing code and that's what i had in mind although i knew that i would be doing back end development but what exactly in back end development i did not know but then it it would just keep getting more and more specific and that is what is expected of you is because when you are at a higher position overlooking something you have to be expert at that uh you know anyone who is an architect you don't expect him to be able to write a write a code for a web server in javascript and also be able to write queries right and for databases so they have to be specialized so motivation so my motivations have changed but i think they have in a sense they have become more and more specialized mm. so do you see the people who like uh the longer that you spend maybe some of your seniors where you work their motivations are you know very highly specif- specific and and very niche and then do you see the people who just enter their kind of uh almost like a deer in headlights and they're like um have have uh motivations scattered everywhere they're very broad yeah um it it's just it's not just with the industry it's also with how you advance in academics right so let's just say that there's a there's a person who is doing uh bachelor's in computer science and then a person who is doing masters in computer science and then a person who is doing phd in computer science do you see the level of specialization yeah. like the we if you go to phd you would ask what is the topic that you are researching they are not going to say uh you know what i'm researching algorithms that's not an answer they would probably say you know i'm researching this aspect of this algorithm and how we can improve it mm-hmm. it's that special it's that specific so definitely i think the same thing applies to the industry i've seen so many people like the architects who are who are you know experts at craft databases or like some very specific things and they are really good at it mm-hmm. yeah um a bit of a tangent here but mm-hmm. i i did see on your um i think on your linkedin you had a really really good score on the csbe exam oh the cbse exam c cbe how are you how do you say it? cbse cbse okay yeah. <laughs> dyslexia got the better of me on on the paper um So I that's a pretty very big deal in India, right? That exam. Yeah, I mean, I think 
study in general is like very seriously taken mm-hmm. in India and the standardized exams like CBSE or yeah. the JE exams that's going to get you into uh, some of the you know renowned colleges in India they are definitely taken very seriously yeah yeah so um, how did you go about preparing for for that test yeah i mean so this i th- i'm just trying to think of an advice uh, that's going to be different that's going to be based on my experience and is different from the standard advices like you know i don't know sleep 6 hours every day or something like that so yeah this one thing that i've noticed about a lot of hard working people is they have this tendency to do everything like if you have if you have if you were to read a book and then uh, you know appear for an exam where the questions would be coming from that book you have this tendency to read everything right but what but my philosophy has always been to first find out what's important and then get to the depth of it because the ex- because if if exam if the exam is really uh you know prepared by a person who thinks well then they would be giving you questions about something in depth now you have limited time right so this is also an optimization problem if you think of it you have a limited time to prepare for the exam would you want to cover the syllabus in breadth or do you want to prioritize find out the important topics and cover them in depth so i go with the second one and it's just uh, you st- i would let go of i would literally get let go of maybe 20% of the syllabus not even touch it at all because i just know that it's not important mm-hmm. so you know the the ability to identify what's important maybe looking at the past exam patterns um and just seeing you know what kind of questions they ask that's going to help you a lot in in i think going through any standardized standardized tests in fact in general for academics this is what my approach has always been I'm fine with losing one or two marks but I want to get that one question really right that's very important. Yeah. And exam culture is I mean the SAT is really really important here. Mm-hmm. Um but it's not like like especially amongst people who are pretty hard working or want to get into a good school or things like that. But um I'm wondering how that differs from India or like most if not like 90 something percent of um the adolescents in India who are getting ready to take that test are are very very serious about it yes they are and i think they do not have any other option let me tell you why so the standardized test uh, the jee exam which lets you in to many of the uh, engineering colleges in india 800000 people more than 800000 uh, students appear for it every year okay and i can give you a slight estimate of uh, how much you would have to score or rank in order to get to the college that i was at so for my college i think the cutoff was 3000 so if i'm doing the math right that's more than 99.9 percentile okay so and if you want to get into a really good college you have to have a uh, rank that's you know maybe i don't know under 10000 or something so his so this is the bigger bigger challenge for people because a lot of people are appearing for it there's no other option but to take it religiously 
and you have to study hard to get into those great colleges and um, a lot of people just try to you know get into many of those uh, colleges and they have to study hard in fact just to prepare for that exam they after after graduating high school they actually start studying for it four years before even they have to appear for that exam wow. so yeah that's that's how um, cut throat the competition is um, and yeah i mean people take it very seriously um is that part of the reason why there's so many uh, like i know there's so many good programmers coming out of india and i know that there's a lot of outsourcing of programming and um, a lot of tech jobs with india is that part of the reason because there's so many people and there's so much competition that you're just really chipping away and, and finding like the cream of the crop yeah um so so there's one thing which is hard working and there's one thing which is you know someone who is like really expert at things or has a has a great iq now most of the times um if you if you find someone from those top colleges in india like iits are considered a big thing right so one thing i can guarantee you is and even in your future you would see this uh, is if you see a person who is from those colleges i'm not saying the other colleges are bad or people are not you know smart but this this is definitely a filter that if if the person passes that filter then they are going to be smart they are going to be absolutely you know uh, like they have this knack for things so that's the reason why uh, many people who graduate from those colleges especially with computer science degree uh, they are just really able to get things done they not only were they hard working because they had to be hard working to get into that college right beating uh, 800000 like competition among 800000 people right so they definitely are hard working and they are like very smart people so yeah I, i guess that's the reason why and the the coding it also depends on the coding culture like the kind of culture that the college has um and our seniors would organize all of those classes and many like people in um, a lot of people a lot of uh, juniors would go to those uh, uh, classes it's it's it was just free of cost you would it's like a club but a coding club and they would just go to those classes and learn from them mm-hmm. it's just a culture thing so and from your time in india have have you seen a lot of people um moving to the US or moving to the west to work or are there a lot of people who stay in india and just work remotely stay in india and work remotely or like stay in india and work work i mean work remotely or otherwise but stay in india is that a question yeah like like work for a western company or you know us or canadian company uh but you're working in india yeah yeah so um i think like based on my friend group i'd say there's a 30 70 split probably so 30% of the uh, people would be coming to the us and gaining experience here and 70% would stay back now out of that 70% maybe um, 60 to 70 would be still working with multinational corporations and the remaining would be in some of the uh, local industries or government jobs gotcha. yeah Okay. So, last two questions here. Mm-hmm. If you could repeat your journey through tech and computer science, data science, is there anything that you would have done differently? 
Uh, I think I touched upon this, uh, especially during my studies, I guess, uh, you know, just just go out and try new things from, from early on uh, to get practical experience. That's something that I would definitely do, uh, which I hesitated. And what else? Yeah, I think I think the exposure part was really important for me, and I I felt that when, you know, I I I felt that the my peers were ahead of me because they were getting all of that exposure, but I was not. So definitely, that's something that I would change, not just in the academics, but also you know when you're working on things uh, in tech, when you're working for an organization, just get a lot of exposure. Try to do things outside of your work as well. Try to learn things outside of your work as well, uh, from early on. What exactly do you mean by outside of your work? So when you're working on a problem, you come across maybe, you know, some some sort of, some sort of implementation that you have to read something to understand, right? But but your project should not be the one that decides what is it that you're gonna read. So you should also be reading upon the related topics, and you should be really proactive about it. Maybe spend sometime every week every weekend you know reading on things and that's what i've done in fact i have two of my friends and we we you know we we get on a zoom call every weekend and then we would discuss some stuff about uh ai so one of the guys i was mentioning right uh, he's working with pharmaceutical company so he's he's a, he's a very smart guy uh, into deep learning and then there's this other guy who's also like very smart he 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 also worked with goldman sachs by the way back in india and we just discuss things. We would ask a random question. Maybe I'll give them some algorithmic questions, or he would give us some system design questions, or he would talk about some latest trends, trends in machine learning. So that's the thing that you know. Um, so th I learned from my past, and so that's the reason why I made that change and made sure that you know I'm doing that now. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I I need to do that with geology. Just get <laughs> get some buddies together. Oh, yeah. Zoom call, talk about oh, yeah. talk about rocks. Definitely. I mean, my philosophy has always been um, the group of friends I'm with. Mm -hmm. I always want to be in the lower 50 percentile of intelligence. Now, this is very counterintuitive because um, if you are the smartest in the group, you feel really good, right? But there's, uh, th there's a caveat to it, which is you're not getting to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, so you yourself want to be in the lower fifty percentile? Gotcha. Okay. And I'm happy, and, and I'm very happy with satisfying this constraint that I have to be in the lower fifty percentile because I have the remaining fifty percent of the people are smarter than me, and I'm going to get, I'm going to learn a lot from them. And if you keep doing that in your life, you'd find that it becomes more and more hard to satisfy this constraint. Obviously, right? So yeah, I mean, that's what I do. Yeah. So flipping my previous question on its head, what decisions are you really grateful that you made? I think getting exposure to uh, to many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very happy that I was able to do that, you know, get my hands on uh, web development, app development, uh, machine learning and databases and stuff like that. Because I feel like... Um, Unless you have something that you contrast your interests with, you really do not know what is it that you like, right? So I even in your field, uh, if you want to find out like what is it that you really like, how do you how do you quantify it? 
that this is the thing that you like it's not ju- it's it's just not because of that isolated exposure to that thing but also because you were exposed to many different related things in the same discipline but you were able to find out that this is something that stood out so that that's something that you know helped me understand that okay you know i'm not really interested in maybe front end development mm-hmm. but i would definitely like to do something with data and analytics and you know optimization and stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah sure well shabam thank you so much for coming on of course really thank you so much it. for having me yeah. yeah yeah all the insights are really really good and I, I wish you the best yeah you too man thank you for listening to this episode with shabam pandi i hope you learned something new and enjoyed your listening experience if you'd like to listen to more episodes you can check out our official website at www.heightsofhumanitypodcast.com you can also find us on every major streaming platform That includes Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and more. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. Have a great day.